of God's Word. Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, our, our text is actually the first five verses of the chapter. As we do this time of year, we'll take a little break from what we're working our way through this year, Gospel of John, taking a little break to, to look at a particular section and see how we can find Christmas there. Because, of course, all the Bibles about Jesus, you'd expect to find Christmas everywhere in the Bible. Um, this year, we're looking at a section in Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 books, and there are three large sections in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters function as a section, chapters 40 to 55, and then 56 to the end. Uh, serve as three large sections in the, the prophecy of Isaiah. In that first section, chapters 1 to 39, this, the first 12 chapters really function as their own discrete section. And what you'll find if you read through those first 12 chapters is there are a number of places where the prophet Isaiah is confronting God's people. Chapter 1 is an example of that. And then there are other sections where the prophet Isaiah is comforting God's people. Even though they are unjust, and even though they are sinful, and even though their sins are scarlet, yet God will not leave them in their sins. Rather, he will come and rescue them. So this December, we're going to be looking at those comforting passages. Today, we're looking at the second chapter and this, this whole scene that centers on the mountain called Zion. But we'll also see how it is that, that God promises one who is a, a branch, one who comes to bring God's people to Zion. We'll see this sign that is offered to God's people, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called God with us. We'll see uh, how this child, the child, will be the one who brings justice and peace to God's world. And then on Christmas Day, Isaiah 11, we'll see how it all comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ and how the mountain uh, and the branch and the sign and the child all find their tying together right at the end of the section in chapter 11. I'm very excited about all of this, but, but I'm especially excited about our passage this morning that tells us of the mountain. But before we see the importance of all this, we need the help of our Lord. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people, uh, desiring to, to know more about Jesus, but not just know more about him. Lord, we desire to see him and to adore him and to praise him and, and to have him change us, to transform us so that we might be those who are not just followers, but indeed brothers and sisters of the great king. Lord, we pray that you would do your work today through your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and show us glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in life, I've I've discovered you can actually get to know people through just a series of binary distinctions. Uh, And if you follow these binary distinctions, you actually learn a lot. For example, there are dog people and there are cat people. There, There are SEC, Southeastern Conference people, and everybody else. And there are beach people, and there are mountain people. Now, in those binaries, doesn't mean that if you're on one side or the other that you can't appreciate things about the other side. Sarah and I, we are dog people, but we have owned a couple of short-lived cats. Uh, they've come into the Lucas household. Uh, and of course, I'm a, I'm a huge SEC person, but we we can have grudging respect for other conferences like the Big Ten, but, but not so much the Big 12. And while I certainly can go to the beach, I really love the mountains. And, and in loving the mountains, I have good theological company. Uh, the great Presbyterian theologian and the founder of my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, a theologian named J. Gresham Machen, Toward the end of his life, he actually gave a speech to a group of ministers called Mountains and Why We Love Them. And in the midst of that talk, Machen recounted going in the summer of 1932 to the Alps and climbing the Matterhorn. And this is what he said. I stood on the summit of the Matterhorn in the Alps. Some people who can stand there and see very little. Uh, Depreciating the Matterhorn is a recognized part of modern books on mountain climbing. The great mountain, it is said, is, has been sadly spoiled. Uh, why, you can even see sardine cans on those rocks that so tempted the ambition of climbers in, in past days. Well, I can only say that when I stood on the Matterhorn, I don't remember seeing a single can. I think that was due uh, to the fact that unlike some people, I had eyes for something else. I saw the vastness of the Italian plain, which was, was like a symbol of infinity. I saw the snows of, of distant mountains. I saw the sweet green valleys far, far below at my feet. I saw the whole glorious round of glittering peaks bathed in an unearthly light. We can see that with him, can't we? Even as Machen described it. Because there's something about mountains, the view, the heights, the sense of nearness to the heavens. It was one of the reasons that ancient religions all sought the high places as places of worship. Uh, You've read the Old Testament, you know how uh, throughout the Old Testament, God warned his people not to worship on the Canaanite high places which were thought to be what the Irish would later call thin places, places where heaven and earth met, places where time and eternity 
came together. And yet, it's striking that when God describes the place where he dwells, where the true God of the world actually takes up residence, where, where time and eternity meet, and when he describes the place where the nations come, what does he describe? A mountain. Right? We just read that. This place called Zion, the mountain of the Lord. And especially in this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 2, we, we find that the great hope and expectation that God holds out to the peoples is that they would find a place in Zion. Which only makes sense to us if we recognize that throughout the Bible, Zion's not merely a place. Zion's actually a people. You see, God's not calling his people to go on pilgrimage to a a place necessarily. He's not calling them to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem or, or to the temple or to a holy site or even to a mountain. Rather, he's calling his people to himself. He's calling them to find a place in his family, a place where we might know him, a place where we might walk in his light and delight in his goodness and his grace and his glory. But why should we hear God's call this morning? Why should we respond to his invitation to, to come to the mountain of the Lord, to come to Zion? Well, we should, we should heed his invitation and respond because, because of the attraction of Zion. The attraction of the mountain of the Lord. It, striking how Isaiah describes all of this. He describes what he calls something that's going to come to pass in the, in the latter days, not the last day, the last day of, of judgment and salvation when God brings this final form of all of his purposes to bear, the latter days, some future day. And, and it's on this future day that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be attractive. It will attract all the nations and not just Israel. It will attract many peoples and not just Jacob's sons and daughters. And, and Zion will be attractive. It will attract the nations because it, it will be lifted up. The city of Jerusalem is actually set on a, a relatively high place. Uh, Jerusalem measures at about 2,774 feet above sea level. And so it's, it's in a relatively high spot, particularly when you compare it to Jericho, 18 miles to the north, which sits at a height of just 787 feet. Or the Dead Sea, which is about 25 miles to the southeast as the crow flies, which is actually about 1,400 feet under sea level. And so comparatively, Jerusalem is high up, but it's not the highest peak in Palestine. Not even the highest peak mentioned in the Bible. For example, just go right across the Kidron Valley to the east and go to the Mount of Olives and you'll discover that the Mount of Olives is about 200 feet higher than the highest point in Jerusalem. And if you were to go to Mount Hermon, which is mentioned several times in Scripture, about 100 miles to the north, well, Mount Hermon sits at well over 9,200 feet. And so what does this mean, this prophecy? When Isaiah sees a day in the future when the mountain of the house of the Lord, you see it in verse 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. What does that mean? It won't be literally the case. What is Isaiah seeing? Well, he's seeing a a point in time when the mountain will be lifted up. It'll be exalted. It'll be made prominent in such a way that it would tower over all those smaller hills where the other gods are worshipped, where where the, the pagan peoples think that heaven and earth meet. No, if you want to know where heaven and earth meet, you have to come to Zion, because Zion is the place where the true God of the world is and where God's people dwell. The reason why Zion will prove to be attractive is because it's lifted up, and because it is lifted up, the nations are drawn to it. It's a striking phrase at the end of verse 2, where it says, and all the nations shall flow to it. All the nations shall flow to it. If you have the NIV in your lap this morning, it says, all the nations shall stream to it. The image is of a river, and the peoples are like a river, but notice the river is flowing up the mountain. There may be one river in the world that does that. I'm not aware of it. Google didn't tell me that. But it's highly unusual for rivers to go straight up the mountain. It's not something that is normal. You don't often see it, do you? And yet what, what Isaiah sees in that future day is that the nation shall, shall stream into it, though it seems unusual. They'll stream into that place. Why? Why? Because they're drawn to it. I love the phrase from the Old Testament scholar Alex Mautier, who, who says that this is happening by a supernatural magnetism. There's a supernatural magnetism at work. What is this supernatural magnetism? Why are the peoples, the nations, being magnetically drawn to Zion, to God's place, to God's people? Well, I trust you know the reason. It's not because real estate is cheaper there. It's not because of the views that you can see off of that mountain. It's not like the Matterhorn that Machen described. No, the reason why the nations are, are supernaturally, magnetically drawn to, to Zion is because God's there. It's because the true God of the world is there. The only one who can satisfy their hearts. The only one who can soothe the weary soul. He's there. And that's why the nations come. That's why they flow and stream into that place. It's because Zion is attractive. And they, want, they desire, they long for the actions of this God. These actions that demonstrate both his goodness and his glory. What is it that the nations desire? Well, Isaiah tells us that as the nations come to Zion, as the nations come to the mountain of the Lord, they desire to know God's ways. Did you see it? Verse 3. All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So striking how the nations have set aside their nationalism, how they've set aside their own gods, 
how they've set aside their own customs and traditions, set aside their own ways in order to go to Zion, to the mountain of the house of the Lord, so that they might learn God's ways, so that they might learn of him. They know that, that God's words, this word of the Lord from Jerusalem in verse 3, they know that God's words, their only hope. Well, what is this? What is it when, when the nations recognize, when people recognize, where maybe you as an individual recognize that your ways, the way you think about life, your customs, your traditions, they aren't working for you anymore. And in fact, they will, they're, they're leading you to, to certain destruction. And so you come to realize that. And so you turn your back on those ways and you run to the God who is declared in Holy Scripture. And you say, I want to learn your ways and I want to follow you. What's that called? Repentance. That's called repentance. Repentance is turning from our own ways and the desires of our own hearts and having a change of mind that leads to a change of action so that we come to this God and we come to know his ways and we come to delight in him. That's what the nations are doing. Why do they do this? Why, why would anyone repent? I think that the nations are doing this. I think many of us could testify, having repented, that, that if you are left to yourself, if you're left to your own ways and your own ideas of life and your own traditions and customs and you do what your heart wants to do and you do what your reason wants to do, what you ultimately discover is it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. It'll leave you staggered and undone. This week I finished a, a novel that I'd never read before. It was written by a man named G.K. Chesterton. It was written in 1909. The novel was called The Ball and the Cross. The, the plot is far too zany to summarize, but it's driven forward by this ongoing dialogue between a Christian and an atheist. The atheist is married to the ball, to the, to the globe, the earth. He's married to the world. Of course, the Christian is the one who's promoting the cross. Toward the end of the, the novel, the Christian finally declares in an important summary statement, he says, this is the final and blasting test. The world left to itself grows wilder than any creed. Let the rationalists run their own race and see where they end. If the world has some healthy balance other than God, we'll let the world find it. Does the world find it? Cut the world loose. Does the world stand on its own end? Does it stand or does it stagger? Well, whether the world knows it or not, cut loose from God and his ways, it staggers. And some of you have discovered that, haven't you? You've discovered that life lived apart from God and his ways, with your own reason and your own desires, following your own ways, your own customs, your own traditions, it leaves you staggering to where you, you are almost left undone. And what you desire more than anything else is to be set on a solid foundation for life in this world and the life to come. And that's what, that's what the nations desire. That's why they're streaming into Zion. They desire to learn the ways of God. And, and look what it is that God does. He certainly teaches his word, but he does something more. 
He executes justice in his world. Did you see it? Verse 3, for out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All that is wrong, all that is false, not just in the world around us, but in the world inside of us, whether it's the miscarriage of justice at the highest levels or the failure of right at our own individual level, it's all rooted out of God's world. How does that happen? Well, God judges the world. Listen, if you pay attention at Christmas time, at any small degree, what you will discover is that the coming of the Messiah means justice and peace. He comes to, to judge the world. God judges the nations of the world as they become his own. He deals with the nations. He decides disputes among the peoples, but he also deals with us and our own individual injustice and our own seeking of wrong instead of right. At every level, when the Messiah comes, he brings justice. And what's the result of God's justice? Well, peace. Peace in such a way that, that, that the very means of war, swords and spears, are done away with. The very practice of war, the lifting up of the sword, done away with. The very mentality of war, they shall learn, they, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's done away with. They all alike disappear. Why? Because God is present and he's the one who's rooting out sin and injustice from the nations and from us as individuals. And so what happens? Swords are reforged into plows. Spears are repurposed as, as grape uh, vineyard hooks to prune them. Uh, the culture is no longer aggressive, but rather pastoral, agricultural. And it's all because God draws the nations to Zion. And he teaches them his ways. And he executes justice in his midst. But remember, Zion's not just a place. It's a people. This is a description of God's people. And that's what brings the concluding exhortation in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's a kind of parallel there with verse 3. In verse 3, the nations say, O come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why? That we may walk in his paths. Verse 5, the prophet turns to the ones who were already God's people, the house of Jacob, and says, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, what will be true of the whole world in coming days, God's people, let's embody that now. Let's learn God's ways. Let's walk in his paths. Let's embrace God's authority in our lives. Let's seek his justice and pursue his peace. Let us be the people now that the whole world will someday be. But friends, that's not just for the house of Jacob in the 8th century B.C. Friends, that's a word for us today. Because after all, friends, we are Zion. IPC, you are God's people. 
We are called to be the people now that the whole world will someday be. But of course, we have to confess all too often we're just not those kind of people. Um, We don't live like those who've been taught by the Lord. We are not those who seek justice and do mercy. All too often, we war with each other and we war with the world around us. We take our words and make them swords. We take our influence and use it as a spear to do harm, to wound, to destroy. So how might we be, how might we be transformed? How might we be changed into this kind of people? The people that Isaiah describes, this kind of place. How might we be changed into Zion? Well, if you fast forward to a New Testament preacher who leaves a sermon at the end of the New Testament that we call Hebrews, I think you get a hint. Because the writer says there, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is he saying? Well, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that when we come to this mountain, when we come to Mount Zion, you aren't just coming to the assembly of the firstborn. And you're not just coming to angels who are wearing their festal clothes. You're not just coming to other men and women who are the spirits of those who have been made perfect. But rather, when you come to Mount Zion, the one person that you are coming to above all is you're coming to Jesus. And you're coming to under his blood that cleanses you from all sin. But wait, Isaiah 2 said... That when the nations come to Mount Zion, when they come to that place, when they come to that people, they're coming to God. But the writer to the Hebrews says, when you come to Mount Zion, you're coming to Jesus. So what is it? Are we coming to to God? When we come to Zion, are we coming to to Jesus? Of course, as you know, the answer is yes. Jesus is God, the God-man who was born in a stable in Bethlehem and was crucified on a small hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. And and, and it's because Jesus shed his blood that, that we are cleansed from all sin, but that blood that cleanses us is also the blood that empowers us, that changes us, that transforms us, that leads us in pathways of repentance. And so the result is that we become a new people belonging to a new city on a mountain called Zion. And we have God's law in our, in our hearts, written on the tablets of our hearts. We have God's law in our minds. And we all know him from the least of us to the greatest. Because we've all heard the word of absolution. I will remember their sins no more. And so when God's word comes to us and calls to us today, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We can say, yes, Lord. Yes, we will now be the people that the whole world will someday be because Jesus the God man came for us that we might be brought to Zion friends Jesus brought you to this mountain he brought you to this place he brought you to this people and so go tell it from the mountain tell it to every hill 
and to every people that Jesus Christ is the Savior who brings us to this Zion. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we rejoice in this image of this mountain, this place is really a people. But Lord, we rejoice even more that, that you have made us children of Zion, that we can go around and people from, uh, as it were, Egypt and Assyria, people from Cush, even people from Memphis, you have said this one was born there and that one was born there. They've come to know me because they've come to me through Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see how glorious and wondrous it is that you who are rich beyond all splendor became poor for our sakes, that we who are poor, who deserved death, you've made us rich. Rich in goodness, rich in glory, rich because we've come to Zion. Lord, grant us hearts to believe and to rejoice in the good news this day. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's